but we are going to read scripture here. Uh, the scripture passage today is uh, John 20, verses 1 through 23. And if you're following along with the Bible on the back of the uh, pew, it's on page 1074, 1074. And if you are able, please stand in honor of God's word. Enough time? Okay. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After, this, after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And he, with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is God's word. I want to thank Tom for setting the table for me, so now when I preach an hour, everyone will be happy. <laughs> what a wonderful service we had last week. I mean, Easter Sunday is always something, isn't it? The music so uplifting, so glorious. The, the, the relationships so joyful and warm. The messages inspiring. 
the church filled, wonderful celebrations afterwards. What a tremendous day Easter is. This is the week after Easter. Now what? And this passage gives us the answer to that question. Because it tells us the story of Jesus being resurrected. And when he first appears to his disciples, he answers that question, then what? He says to them, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Jesus is saying, now what? Go. Go into the world and take this news of my resurrection and the new life that I have to offer out into the world. You excited about that? Well, our world doesn't seem to be too excited about it. And sometimes uh, we aren't either. Because the Western culture has a lot of issues with us going out and telling them about Jesus Christ and that the only way to God is through Christ. In our society of tolerance, we like to think that everybody has a way. They all have their own personal way to God. And so the exclusivism of Christianity is a turnoff. Very often, as we present it, the gospel, people think that we are coming with some sense of superiority because we have the way and they don't. Somehow we feel we're better than them. And there's this self-righteousness they, they attribute to us, whether it's there or not. And so we're a little reluctant to go out and tell this good news to our world. You know, the disciples had it worse than we did. Can you imagine what they felt? Here they are, after Jesus' death, in a room, and what does it say? They are cowering in this upper room. Why are they cowering? They just saw their teacher and their master crucified. And Jesus had taught them, by the way, you're going to be received just like I was. They had it harder to go out into their world. But Jesus said, go. We're going to talk about what Jesus told us to do over the next two weeks. This week, we're going to look at the question, why we should go. And next week, we're going to answer the question, how we should go. Let's pray. Our Lord, I, these songs were wonderful, for they really spoke the message this morning that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He brings the Father's glory, and this world needs the Father's glory. That he has chosen us to first shine into our lives. And as we reflect on the glory of Jesus Christ, we ourselves are transformed from glory to glory. And we are to bring that into our worlds. Lord, breathe your spirit on us today in a special way. Move us out as you move the disciples out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The question 
Why should we go? We're going to see two answers. We're going to explore two answers this morning. We should go because we have the words of life. And we are the only ones with those words of life. And secondly, we go because Jesus sent us. Because he tells us to go. Now before we begin to unpack those answers, I want us to understand the nature of the Gospel of John. John often has two layers of meaning to what he says. There's a surface literal meaning, which is true, but underneath that literal surface meaning, he is giving us another message as well. Think of Jesus' miracles. In fact, John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs because they are more than simply an act of healing or feeding. They are a sign, a message of a deeper truth. So when Jesus feeds the 5,000 literally with bread, he's trying to teach them that he is the bread of life. When he heals the blind man, he is doing more than giving someone physical sight. He is saying, I give spiritual sight to all who are spiritually blind. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he brought physical life to a person to show us all that he offers us himself as the resurrection and the life into eternal life. John brings it out when he uses Caiaphas' statement, and he shows Caiaphas' statement in condemnation of Jesus has two meanings. Caiaphas meant it to say, We have to end Jesus' life or we're going to have trouble for our nation. We're going to lose our lives. So we need to save people by crucifying Jesus. But John says God had another meaning. And that was speaking of what Jesus was going to do in the spiritual realm for all of humanity to save our lives. So it's important to understand that under John's words, are often deeper spiritual meanings that he's trying to convey. So with that in mind, let's look at the first answer. Why should we go? Because we have the words of eternal life. Again, let's think about the disciples. They walked with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They ate with him. They slept with him. They saw a Samaritan, immoral Samaritan woman transformed by Jesus. They heard him speak to a supreme religious leader that he had to be born again, but he was offered that new life. They witnessed the blind seeing. They witnessed Lazarus rising from the dead. They heard Jesus say, I come to give you life so that it might be abundant. And they saw that become a reality in life after life after life. So when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life itself, they believed it until Jesus was taken and crucified. At that moment, they must have felt the complete collapse of their world and all that they believed, and everything that they thought Jesus was going to bring into their world. 
But when Jesus stepped into that upper room that night while they're cowering, that all changed. Because now they had proof, living again proof, that all that Jesus said about life is true. It is that which is being offered to the entire world. Now, what are they supposed to do with that message? They have the keys to life for everyone. Are they supposed to put it in their pocket and simply drive themselves? That would be the most unloving thing that anyone could do. Keep it to yourself. Feast on it. But don't share it with others because it's too threatening. If you're one who hasn't yet accepted Christ and looks at the church and says, why do they have to try to shove this down our throats? We apologize when we've done it wrongly, when we've done it out of a self-interest or a self-righteousness. We need to change. We need the humility that the gospel brings us. But if we love you, we have the greatest message for you. We can't keep it to ourselves. That would be wrong. That would be the most unloving thing we could do. So we need to go because we have the words of life. And I want to look at that through four phrases. If you do underline your Bible, you might want to underline these phrases. I'd even say if you're using a pew Bible, if you took the pencil, you could actually underline those if it's going to help you follow. But the four phrases are on the first day of the week. Early on the first day of the week in verse 1. And then while it was still dark, also in verse 1. Uh, in verse 7, halfway through that verse, the cloth was folded up by itself. And in verse 14, she turned around. So I'm going to talk about the meaning of what it is that we have the words of life. And the first words we see is early on the first day of the week. Now, what did I just say earlier? There's the real meaning. This was the first day of the week. In our calendar, it's Sunday. I'm glad Brandon brought out that's exactly why we worship, because this is the greatest day in Christian history. But when we begin to understand that John has a theme that runs through his book, and that theme is that Jesus has come to bring a new creation. Old things are passing away, new things are coming. If you turn to John 1.1, you don't need to. The book starts with these words, in the beginning. Now you've heard those words before, haven't you? They're in Genesis 1.1. So John starts his book and immediately our minds go to the original creation. And all the hope and the promise that that original creation had. But then our hearts should drop because all those hopes have been dashed. The world has gone wrong. It's been corrupted. We don't live in paradise anymore. What happened? Well, John's going to tell us 
Here's the solution. Here's the answer. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus, was with God. But he was God. But now he comes and he tabernacles among us. He comes to be God's very presence among us. You'll notice in the next couple verses, it says Jesus is the light. And what does the light do? It shines in the darkness. You see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1? It was dark, but the Lord spoke and light came in. And so the light of Jesus Christ now comes into spiritual darkness into this world. What are the last words that Jesus says on the cross in the Gospel of John? It's finished. The work is completed. Where have you heard those before? In Genesis chapter 2, after the six days of creation, God looked and said, it's finished. The work is completed. Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to create his disciples anew. Adam was first created by God taking the dust of the earth, forming the body and breathing his breath into them. Now Jesus is taking the disciples to transform them, and he does what? He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. So when we understand this, the life of Jesus is bringing us a new creation. On the sixth day of the week, Good Friday, Jesus is crucified and he says, my work is finished. The seventh seventh day of the Sabbath, Jesus rests in the tomb. And now we have John's words, early on the first day of the week, Jesus has risen. There is a new creation that he brings. It's a new creation for each one of us as individuals. What is your past? What are your failings? What are your sins? Jesus Christ comes to forgive those, to wipe the slate clean, to give you a new beginning. And even when you sin, when you bring those sins and confess them, Jesus wipes the slate and offers again the new beginning. And he's going to offer us a power in that new beginning, the Holy Spirit, to live within us to work in us. Jesus offers you a new creation. But he also offers a new kingdom to the world, a new way for the world. He wants us to be moved into our world to start healing the pains of the fall, first on the spiritual level and then on the physical level. You know, whenever I think of this new creation, and you've heard me before on this, is I think of the resurrection scene in the movie The Passion. If you remember that, if you don't, I'll still recall it for you. The camera goes into the tomb, and you see Jesus getting up, leaving his clothes behind. You see his back naked. You see him get up. And I just think of Adam. The first Adam was created and he was naked and unashamed. And then he walks out of the tomb into the sunlight. And I'm like, okay, what's going to happen next? And then the movie ends. And I think that's what Jesus is presenting, John is presenting here. This is the first day of the week. What happens next? 
And it's up to you. It's up to the Christians as to what happens next in that possible, that new world that's possible out there. Jesus has called us to be healing selves in that world. I think of Francis of Assisi's prayer. Let me be an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, we sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. The church is to be on the cutting edge of fighting racism and injustice, of feeding the poor and visiting the prisoners, of helping widows and single parents, of serving the homeless and fighting human trafficking, of protecting our environment and training people in the skills for living, reaching out to the addict, visiting those in a nursing home. We are to be a part of that kingdom moving into the world. Jesus offers a new creation, but we have to believe or it's useless to us. And we see that in the next underlying phrase when he says, it was dark. Now I know I passed over those words for years until I started thinking, Matthew and Mark don't say it's dark outside. Matthew says at dawn, when the sun is rising, Mark says, it's light out there. Now, I'm not going to take the time to reconcile those two. They're very easily reconciled. But what I want to point out is there's another reason for John emphasizing the darkness. Remember John 1.1? Jesus is the light who comes into what? He comes into darkness. In the upper room, when Judas leaves, John just throws this time thing right in the middle and he says, and it was night out. The reason is he is giving the sense of the darkness that has now come once Judas has left to betray Jesus Christ. What's very interesting here is Mary comes to the tomb, but it's dark. Jesus has risen, but there is still spiritual darkness. Why? Because Mary has not yet turned to Jesus to see the risen Christ. The resurrection is real, but it's not real to her because she's still looking for the body in the tomb. We have to place our faith in the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in paying the debt for our sins and in his resurrection and the offer of new life. Now, planes can take us to California, but unless we get on that plane, it's not going to do us any good. A medicine can fix a physical ailment. But unless we take that medicine, we're going to remain sick. A college education will open doors for you, but unless you enroll and take the classes, uh, it does nothing for you. This is the part of life. You have to apply and take into you and receive 
that which you know or told is going to help you. Yet somehow in the spiritual dimension, we have this idea that, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, that's good. If he died on the cross, then that's okay because everybody's taken care of. Everyone's forgiven. We call that universalism. It's applied to everybody. But it's very clear here. We are in darkness until we personally apply it to our lives. Jesus offers light, but we have to believe. Why should we believe? Because it's true. And that's the next underlying statement. And the head cloth was folded neatly. I want to bring out two points from that. First of all, the detail that John gives. It's incredible. Remember earlier, she goes to the tomb. It's dark outside. Now she runs to the disciples. The disciples come in. Two disciples are running, right? And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, what? he gets there first. Then he stops. He waits. Peter comes. And then they do what? Then they stoop in and they look. The detail is absolutely incredible. Then you have this detail. The grave claws are there, but the head covering is neatly folded. Now, that might be not be too impressive to us because we don't understand ancient literature. This is written with detail like modern fiction. Ancient fiction never used the details. Uh, Reynolds Price, a literary scholar at Duke University, tells us that... Uh, Modern fiction uses detail. Ancient fiction never did. He says, today an author might write, he stayed until four, but an ancient writer would never say, Oedipus left the Oracle of Adelphi at four. They don't use those details. C.S. Lewis, literary scholar and author, said this, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this, the details of the scripture. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, pretty close to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. If it's untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. The detail is there because that's what John saw. He didn't make this up. He was reporting fact, not creating fiction. But we can also go to that statement of if cloth was folded neatly. Now the story the Jews are going to pass around is Jesus' body is missing because grave robbers stole it. Now, if grave robbers were going to steal a body, would they first undress it? Wouldn't make sense, would it? But what if they decided to say, okay, we don't want the clothes, and they ripped the clothes off? Are they going to ask this? Wait a second. Look at how messy that, that head cloth is. And so they neatly fold it, 
And as they leave, and the, one of them goes back and they say, Adrian Monk, stop that. <laughs> no. They're not going to do that. The body was missing. And even though the body was missing, and even though Jesus had said time and time again to his disciples and to Mary, I'm going to die, and then on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, if you had heard Jesus saying that time and time again, and his body's missing, what would be going through your mind? You might be thinking, is it possibly true? Is it possibly true that what Jesus said came true? But is that what Mary's doing? Mary loves him. There's not one thought in her mind that Jesus is risen. She just runs back and says, they take him the body and don't know where he is. She goes into the tomb. She sees angels. She's Somebody's taking the body. I don't know where it is. She turns around. She sees the gardener. What is she doing? They take in the body. I don't know where she is. In fact, John later says right at the end here, not at the end, but the uh, end of his story, he says, we didn't yet know what Scripture was teaching. We hadn't put it together. Now, God has this question. When he said it over and over and over again, how come the disciples were so dense? And the reason is, there is no category in their mind for this kind of resurrection. N.T. Wright, in his book on the resurrection, goes through the thinking about resurrection in the Greek mind, the Roman mind, the Jewish mind, and there is no place for this kind of resurrection. The Jews who believe there would be resurrection say, go back to Daniel 12, 1 and 2, where it says there's going to be a general resurrection of all at the end of time. By the way, that's why uh, Martha says to Jesus when he says, you know, I'm here, do you believe? Do you believe I could raise him? And she goes, yeah, at the last time. See, there's no category in their mind that a dead person all by himself without a prophet there or something resuscitating, but a dead person all by themselves rising in with a glorious body. What that says to me is, if there's no category, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't make up this story. Because they can't even think up this story. Those who are told it's going to happen don't believe it. And if somebody, say some science fiction writer, <laughs> comes up with this, why would anyone believe it? Because there's no category in this is true. Jesus offers life. We have to believe it. And it's true. And so we turn to the next words where it says, Mary turned around. Our lives turn around when we behold the risen Lord. If you'll notice what happens in Mary's life, she comes, she comes in. And she looks in the tomb. She runs away. She comes back. And when she looks in the tomb, she sees the angels and she says to them, the body's missing. First of all, they ask her, why are you weeping? The body's missing. Don't know where to find them. And then when she turns around, 
the same question is asked. Why are you weeping? And she says, the body's been removed. Don't know where to find it. John does this intentionally. He shows both of these, that they're the same event. Mary has the same attitude of weeping when she looks into a tomb, the body's empty. She weeps, but she is changed. Her entire life is turned around when Jesus says the words Mary, and she realizes he has risen. What I'm trying to say in this is, there are a lot of people who say Jesus is a great moral teacher, he's a wonderful prophet, he's an exemplary example of the way we should live and love. But that's enough. That's all we have to believe. We don't have to believe fairy tales about a resurrection. He's inspiring as a leader. And what we have in this story is one looking into a tomb, believing Jesus is dead. And she is weeping. Her life is shattered. But when she turns around and sees the Jesus who is risen, her entire life now turns around. And as John says, every tear will one day be wiped away. Jesus has risen. We cannot keep him in the tomb and believe that he can do life-transforming, societal-transforming work as a mere model. So far we've said this. Why should we go? Because we have the words of life. We can't keep it to ourselves. Second answer, Jesus tells us to go. He sends us. Notice the story again with Mary. After Jesus, Mary sees Jesus, she starts to cling to him. And Jesus says something that has taken me forever to understand why he says it. He says, stop clinging to me. I haven't yet ascended. I haven't returned to the Father. And I've always been thinking, is there something like super special and spiritual that he's going to get dirty before he returns to the Father if she's touching him? It didn't make sense to me. The key to understanding her words is to see what Jesus tells her to say to the disciples. Verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I have risen from the dead. No. Tell them, I'm alive. No. Tell them, I'm returning to my Father. Curious, isn't it? Why would he say that? Why not say, I'm risen, I'm alive? Because Jesus is pointing to the end point of his time on earth. I am returning to the Father. Therefore, we have business to do before I leave. That's why. Mary, don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. You've got something to do. 
you've got to go and tell the disciples. And when he gets to the disciples, he says, i got something for you. You've got to go. Jesus is always saying go. When he meets Abraham, he appears to Abraham and says, going to make a new nation of you. Go and leave. He meets Moses by the burning fire and he says, Moses, get up and go to the Pharaoh and tell him, let the people, my people go. He appears before Isaiah and he says, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, I'm the guy. He's always saying, go. Go tell. And so we have here in this picture of Mary clinging to Jesus because she is in love with him. She wants to bask in the wonderful relationship that she has with Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, stop clinging. I'm going to be returning to the Father. And I want you to tell the disciples, I'm going to return to the Father. It's wonderful what Jesus Christ has done for us. But do we cling to him? Do we make the Christian life all about me and Jesus? All about, we invest all of our spiritual energy in the intimacy of our relationship with Jesus Christ? We need that. But Jesus is saying, if that's all there is, stop clinging to me and go tell others as well. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Spend intimate time with Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself each day so that that moves your heart to go as Jesus wants you to go. And then he does. He he moves on to the disciples and he says this. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I mean, we often think of, rightly so, Jesus is charged to disciples, go make disciples. Matthew, or in Luke, go. Be my witnesses. But here it's presented in a little different way. John says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. How did the Father send Jesus? What was that all about? Because we need to understand that to have the right heart in the way we go out into the world. We are not simply to go. We are to go as the Father sent Jesus. And the answer to that is all summarized in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent His only begotten Son, so that whoever would believe in Him. Jesus said, I want you to go with the heart that God has for this world. Do you love the world like the Father loved the world? Do you love the world like Jesus loved the world? That's the way we're to go. And when we do love the world like that, we will go. Feel guilty enough yet? So let's say, how? How do you reach that point? You you bathe yourself in the love of Jesus Christ. Receive his love for you. 